everyone, welcome to the 14 Wins Podcast. Uh, this is Bones, and of course we have Rom X with us. Hey everybody! And what we want to touch on this episode is uh, just kind of the general news that's been uh, surfacing on the topic of uh, UFOs and really also the topic of journalism. Uh, I, I feel like we, we've been kind of attacking uh, journalists in previous discussions. Uh, we want to talk about some of the, some of the good ones and how that uh, ties in with kind of the challenges that we face when we, we're trying to gather information on the topic. That's right. I think we'll, we'll top all that off with uh, UFO research because that's really what we're all about. Um, that's right. So there's so much happening in the news right now, though. We, we, we can't avoid it, and it seems like folks really want to talk about it. So let's jump right into it. And I, I think the, the big things that are happening is that Grush's claims are continuing in the exact way that we would expect them to if they were true. So there's been some legislation that's followed, and Gillibrand has passed another piece of legislation that gives the contractors who have this UAP and UFO-related material, because that's how they've been hiding it. They've been hiding it in these third-party contractors. Right. And it's just pretty sketchy. So very. not only are people who are unelected making these decisions about what happens with this NHI technology and bodies, but they're handing it over to third-party people who could then use it. Like, you know, if it's right. a Northrop Grumman or a Lockheed, they can now use this technology to make billions, and they're picking winners and losers. Right. Who's 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 holding them accountable, you know? I mean, That's we, right. Yeah, there's no process behind it. So she's given them a limited amount of time to, uh, to cough that up. We'll hope that the investigators that are working for the inspector general don't allow them to uh, hide that in the, in the time that's allotted. But that actually leads right into talking about journalists. So I know we've picked on journalists a lot on this show, and I really want to mention some good ones. Ross Colhart is an Australian journalist who is a heavyweight journalist who won awards for covering war zones. He's on their version of 60 Minutes. I think it's News One in Australia. And he's done some fantastic work on this topic. And he's got some documentaries that he's done with News One on YouTube. You can go check those out. He's got a podcast called Need to Know with a writer named Bryce Sable that's really good. Um, Ross has brought a integrity and a courage to the subject that has just been very rare. And some of the things he said about journalists and journalism have been very moving. So um, definitely check out Ross Coldheart. I would also mention Leslie Keene, who broke the New York Times story along with Ralph Blumenthal. That's right, the New in, York Times, right. That's right. So they, they broke that story, um, and they've been following up with other great articles. They, they also published the first written piece on the David Grush story and helped bring him in as a whistleblower. Yep. Um, so some of these journalists not only are fearlessly reporting on the topic, but they're also getting involved in getting whistleblowers to safety and getting them to a place where they can they can tell the truth. Um, no, one we, other name that sorry, go ahead. Uh, what I was going to ask is, do you do we consider them as being part of mainstream media? I do. I, I would consider Ross Colhart, Leslie Keene, and Ralph Boomenthal. A part of mainstream national or global media that you know 
Leslie and Ralph published in the New York Times. So it's really about the size of their platform. Yeah, right. And I think Ross, he also did the interview with David Grush. Um, so that's a pretty big uh, platform. Oh, that Ross Colhart. Okay. That's right. 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 Yeah, he was good. Yeah. Yeah, he's a sharp guy. And uh, so Ross, and, and I would actually mention George Knapp when we talk. He's, he's a journalist uh, in the Las Vegas area, but he's written a couple of books that I find really important with, to, about Skinwalker Ranch. And he wrote those books along with two scientists, Colm Kelleher and James Lukatsky, and they both worked on government programs and that were studying the UAP phenomenon-related stuff happening at Skinwalker Ranch. So both of those books, um, Hunt for Skinwalker and Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, I think are really important to read to understand the scope of what's been happening at Skinwalker Ranch and what's been reported by four different scientific teams there. So, yeah, do you think uh, some of these journalists, I mean, you say they're mainstream, have they encountered any censorship themselves? Because we know censorship is a, is a problem in this topic. Yeah, I think they've, what they've encountered is suppression, which is, you know, the fact that they can't get credible outlets to publish oh, right. stories. And um, that's, a, that's suppression. So there, there's a few different tactics that they use to make information seem not real when it is real. That, and by they, I mean the intelligence community. So right. um, one of them is to marginalize, make you, make you seem like a kook. And I think that's why, like with um, some of these heavyweight journalists, it's really important that they, they got on board because it's very difficult to make them seem like kooks. Right. Same thing with the scientists that we mentioned. You know, and there there's a bunch of journalists that fall into the bad category here, and there's too many to even mention. You know, there, there's one that I will mention, which is Julian Barnes, because he wrote a really lame piece in the New York Times. After all this time, they finally covered something that, that's happening in Congress in the New York Times about this issue, and it was just lame. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So there, there's an example. They didn't have Leslie and Ralph publish it. Leslie right. and Ralph published theirs in The Debrief, which right. is a very good military science blog. That's a good source I, I would recommend. But, you know, it doesn't have, it's the size of the platform. Yeah, right. Speaking of platforms and censorship, <laughs> I think that the, we got to talk about us. I mean, yep. so I mentioned some of the uh, different techniques that they use to, like, marginalize and then... Um, there, there's a few steps that they normally take bef suppress before they just straight up censor you and we, we got censored 14 wins got censored our website is is censored on Google and I wasn't sure about that until very recently so I did a bunch of tests because um, I suspected it was that the the, the engagement on 14 wins is 10 times that of any of the five other websites that I'm monitoring for for business related purposes, like mm -hmm. it's, and so that therefore like the the it should be improving in search rank, and it doesn't. It, doesn't. it goes down. It keeps going down. And then um, what I noticed was that we don't show up for a single UFO related term. So to test that, I started changing all the articles and all the episode titles on on this show to UFO. And then I was googling those and can't find us there, right? 
So we'll show up on Google for a bunch of random stuff, but nothing that says UFO or UAP. So they just started, they hit us right out the gate right. with censorship. And I, I wish I knew what it was on our site that's so dang sensitive. I mean, it. We, we have all publicly available information. We try to use news sources, government r reports, scientific papers, or credible blogs. Like, that's it. Right. So I wish I knew what, what they were so afraid of. Um, that might tell us a lot about the phenomenon. But something good came out of all that. I mean, there was a point where I think we were talking about it, and it was like, well, how much is it worth for us to keep pushing on this information? I mean, we'll put it out there, but I got to tell you, Google is 80% of search. These are stats I know very well. Google is 80% of search, and 80% of that is the front page of Google, the first page. So if you were looking for something, you know, how do UFOs fly, you're not going to fly it. find us there. You're not going to find an excellent website on that subject called uaptheory.com. uaptheory.com. Check them out. Very uh, great extensive work on how UAPs fly. And that one's not showing up either. You won't find them on Google. It's very difficult to find on Google. So we come out right right out the gate, you know, censorship. Right. But there was a, a, a little light, you know, in that, which is somehow people found us. And we really have to thank a few sources for that because I can see that where the traffic comes from very easily and, and uh, super grateful to Reddit, Above Top Secret, our Facebook community, and of all places, Twitter. I could not believe, you know, that we've we've been shared a lot and received a lot of traffic from Twitter because it, it's it's so chaotic on Twitter. Yeah, it's, and we don't enter into this social media fray because we think our time's better spent writing and researching about the phenomenon or cutting the show. We'd rather be doing that than going tit for tat with people on social media. Yeah, so, that's that's not worth it. So we're an odd duck. I mean, I didn't know how people would really respond to us, but, you know, I, these last couple months, I just can't believe the support we've received. So thank you to all of you listening. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Thanks. And what we really want to get back to is research, because that's kind of, I think, what we have to offer here is a few years of UFO research. And as this news cycle continues to evolve, and it looks like, more and more, the government is in possession of otherworldly objects. We want to get back to talking about what those things are, where they come from, and whether right. they're good or bad for us, right? Right, because we are at that phase now. I mean, it's it's becoming public knowledge that there is material that we have. Right. Yeah. And the leading theory was extraterrestrial. So uh, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about the second leading theory, which is crypto-terrestrial, and then the third leading theory, which is interdimensional. And we'll take a look at how all of those things could be interrelated, but we'll do those in parts. So, but first I want to talk about how UFO research is conducted so you understand how we arrived at these conclusions. And so all re UFO research is essentially conducted the same. And this is how it's done by Jacques Vallée, this is how it's done by Stanton Friedman. These were these are scientists who conducted the research, and it's case studies. 
because the phenomenon is not repeatable. This has always gotten in the way of it being quote-unquote scientifically proven, is that you can't repeat it in a lab. Whatever those materials are that the government has in their possession, they can be studied. And the results of that may give us an indication of where this phenomenon is from. But as we've mentioned a few times, this phenomenon it seems to be capable of materializing things or making things on the fly. And however that ends up being, because that could, end, that could be done through technology, could be done through hardware. It could also be an inherent ability that some other species has. And it could also be a product of some sort of dimensional rift, uh, for lack of a better term. Right. I totally so, understand. Those are the angles. Right. So those are the three options that we see. And I think we can make very good arguments that it's either one of those three things. So let's start out with how is UFO research conducted? And that, that's by collecting cases, cases that you believe happened cases that are credible so all ufo researchers tend to gather case pools and at 14 wins we gathered case pools in the in the hundreds and i've certainly looked at thousands of cases and uh jacques Vallet, he says his case pool is in the thousands so uh, you, you know the longer you're in the game i'm sure the bigger your case pool is but you basically collect a, a series of cases and you say from this pool of cases i'm going to identify trends I'm going to identify, are they appearing more in rural environments or in city environments? It's definitely in rural. Uh, are they appearing more to large groups of people or small? Small. You know, even the obvious things we went back and, and asked, are they appearing more at night than during the day? You have to go ask these very basic questions at the beginning to understand what it is you're dealing with. Right. And then, right. And then you keep going. Fortunately for us, we came into this pretty late. There's a ton of great research already done, like UFO case history. Michael Schratt is a, is a good one for UFO case history. Richard Dolan collected a lot of UFO case history. Jacques Vallée has a ton of great UFO case history. Um, Stanton Friedman as well. John Keel collected a bunch. So we had a bunch to draw from, and I would count each of those cases that met our standard of evidence as part of our case pool as well as what we went out and collected in the news and et cetera. And, and, and we also had the benefit of looking at this in a longitudinal fashion because all of this happened over decades and decades and decades. And people fortunately have started chronicling this. So that's the best research there is, is, is case history, cases. Right, right. And people should understand that. When you say, what evidence do you have? It's that. So one of the ways lazy debunkers used to uh, just disabuse the entire UFO topic and say, well, I just don't believe people. I think they were all either lying or hoaxing. Right. Even though at this point you're talking about people in the millions. Right. Over, they're all lying and hoaxes. Well, we don't believe that. And we think you're an idiot for thinking that. <laughs> you know, there, there's, it really depends on, just like a court, that's the way we looked at it 14 wins. Who's the witness? Were there multiple witnesses? If there were multiple witnesses, are they connected? What was the witness history? You, you know, th those things ended up being very important to us. What was the integrity of the witness? 
And then what did the witness talk say after? And a lot of people get abused after they come out with something like right. this. So they, they go underground and then they're like, oh, see, they were hoaxing. Well, that's not entire, that, that, that's stupid too. Right. So we looked at a bunch of cases and that's how we ended up coming up with these conclusions. And the one conclusion I can share with you right now is that whatever the government is in possession of, and that includes the craft and the bodies, it is not the scope of the phenomenon. It's bigger than that. This phenomenon, and it gets very touchy here, but the phenomenon involves some element of consciousness. It responds to people. It responds to people's thoughts. One of the better examples I can give of this is John Keel was out on a hill with a reporter who recorded this as well. And they saw some UAPs playing around in the distance, and they started to communicate with them. So he tried it with Morse code, and they responded in Morse code. And then he, he started to make up his own language. And they responded in the language that he was making up. Hmm. And then there's a bunch of other things, like, for example, in abductions. I think the one thing that I would point to to show that the phenomenon is more than just material is that there are cases of abductions that are identical to cases where someone was materially missing and they were never left they never left they never left their bedroom they were you know but yet they're they're reporting that they had this abduction experience in the same way that someone did who was physically missing right and they have the same symptoms of PTSD. They have no history of delusion, things like that. And you can believe those or not believe them, but, but it's stupid to not to make that decision without looking at the cases. Right. It's just the easy so, way out. And, and they don't really want to believe anything. They just want to dismiss it. That's, that's it. right. Yeah. So we can tell you that that was John Mack's conclusion, and John Mack was the Harvard psychiatrist who I think is most well-respected in, in the abduction field. There were other abduction researchers who verified something to this effect, which is Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs. They both found that some cases of UFO abduction don't seem to involve the person going missing. And if you're hell-bent on making this phenomenon into something material, I guess you could say these things do seem to be able to flip around in time. So maybe they just made you disappear for a second and, and then brought you back into the same second. And no one, you know, no one registered it. Right, right. But those are ways you can make that sort of interdimensional nature of it seem extraterrestrial. Or, or be extraterrestrial, or maybe that's how it ends up being. So what we want to do is talk about each of those three theories, extraterrestrial, cryptoterrestrial, and interdimensional, and the cases that we looked at and what ended up meeting our standard of evidence, which is on the 14 Winds website, the About section, what ended up meeting our standard of evidence and the trends that we saw within that that made us think it's something in the ballpark of interdimensional or it has an interdimensional aspect to it. And I gave you just kind of a heads up on what that's going to be with the, with the abductions. I think that's one of the better examples of it. But we'll talk about more of that when we get to the interdimensional episode. What makes the extraterrestrial so unique? So when you're talking about that, that just that just basically means they're not of this Earth, right? Well, extraterrestrial is referring to a species from another planet. Right. 
and crypto terrestrial is referring to a species that may be native to this planet or there's a term that goes around in uap theory a lot called shadow biosphere and a shadow biosphere could be another world that that you can't see that's around us ah right right and that could even include vegetation that we just can't see and interact with on a material level but another species can right interesting yeah uh it's a it's super interesting and i can't wait to dive into that and not focus so much out on the government the news because that stuff is all gonna come out and that's great i think we'll 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 talk about it as more in more solid information comes out but until more solid information comes out i think the best thing we can do for our audience is tell them what it is we're dealing with here and right. why why it's bigger than whatever the government has right i think that's a great approach so hey listeners something to look forward to <laughs> So episode 9 will be extraterrestrial, uh, episode 10 will be crypto-terrestrial, and then we'll wrap it up with the interdimensional. I look forward to it. Right on. I look forward to it as well. Let's uh, talk ETs. Right on. All right. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Ram. Always great to talk to you. And again, special thanks, like you said earlier, special thanks to to everyone who's listening and everyone who uh, peruses the, the website. That's right. We'll see you next time. All right.